Would you pray with me? Father God, you are good. And despite the emotions of the day, despite the trials going on around us, despite everything we see that isn't right, we can hold to the promise that you are good. Thank you for the ways which you work in us to show us more of who you are. And as we come to Scripture today and as Leighton brings a word through the sermon, we ask that you would be working through him and through your word. Give us deeper understanding. Convict us where it is needed. Encourage us where we need encouragement. Above all, may you be honored as we worship you this morning. In your name, amen. If you have a Bible with you, I'm going to invite you to turn to the book of Mark, chapter 3. We'll be re reading chapter 3, verses 7 through to the end of the chapter, 36. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed, from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Iduma, and from beyond the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a great boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those who he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, a son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub, and the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds up the strong man then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called to him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. 
And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who were around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Good morning. The other day, Josh was saying, it's good you're going through Mark because Ecclesiastes is so depressing. Um, But when we look at it, Ecclesiastes, though it has uh, this message of of how everything is meaningless and, and, you know, sorrowful, uh, except for the things that are in Christ, things that are done in God's name. The same thing happens in Mark. This is, this is depressing stuff uh, because you and I are Pharisees. You and I are the crowds uh, that just don't get it. That's how we need to look at, uh, at this scripture. And it, and it just it doesn't come together un- until there's Christ, until there's Jesus. Um, so it's good that we are both going through Old Testament and New Testament uh, and that we can uh, see the wonder of the gospel in each. So far in Mark, Jesus has been announced as the true Son of God, and it's been confirmed by John the Baptist and God himself and the descent of the Holy Spirit. And after a time in the wilderness, uh, a time of temptation, Jesus begins proclaiming and advancing the kingdom of God, both to the wild acceptance of the common people, which we saw in the first five stories uh, in this book, and then the consternation of the religious authorities, which were summed up in the next five stories. And that leads us to today's passage found here in Mark 3, verses 7. And this shows Jesus proceeding now through his Galilean ministry as he begins uh, to gather people around him and to push back the forces of evil. So that said, uh, today we start at chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. And when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. So Jesus goes back to the sea for a little while. He goes back for some peace and quiet, we assume. But the people follow him. Twice in these two verses, it said that it was a great crowd now following him. He's having an impact on those that he's in contact with, but crowds aren't necessarily a good thing in the Bible. It's telling that Mark interprets uh, what the great crowd is actually interested in he says, he says that it's in what Jesus was doing and not necessarily what Jesus was saying. The crowd saw what Jesus could do for them. He was healing the sick and casting out demons from those who were possessed. And it was those immediate needs that brought the flood of people. But from our vantage point, it's clear that Christ's mission is much greater than just the physical. He came to proclaim the kingdom of God. He did that through teaching the scriptures. And then such things as miracles and the casting out of evil spirits was not his main focus. These were just secondary. They were a proof of his authority and an outpouring of his compassion for the sick and the oppressed. But Jesus came not for the symptoms of sickness and death, 
but to defeat death and evil itself. Mark 1.38 says, And he said to them, Let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is what I came out. But obviously the crowds persist. The piece of information that's most relevant to this part of our passage today is not what the crowds are doing, but where the crowds came from. It's location, location, location. Mark 3, 7, and 8, a great crowd followed from Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem, and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon. People read this and see Jerusalem and her surroundings to the north and the south and the east and the west. Did I get that right for you? The west is the Mediterranean, but you get the idea. These lands are largely Gentile now. And so readers see that this is the Great Commission. That's what's going on. Acts 1.8 says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. Same, same sort of picture, right? And you wouldn't be wrong in thinking this. Here begins the spread of the gospel. But digging deeper, Mark wants his readers to see that the crowds are actually gathering from what once constituted all the former lands of Israel. Israel at his peak included all of those names listed. It's the zenith of Israel. This is the territory, uh, the glory of the land that once was. So that's what the readers would be thinking about with this list. This becomes key to the rest of the passage because the big question Mark poses in this chapter is, who are the people of God? And while Jesus' answer at the end of the text is unexpected and perhaps even harsh, we will see that the foundation of the answer has to do with the old borders of ancient Israel. Who are the people of God? They were Jacob's children, initially found within the borders of the promised land. That's the intro. And, that, and then what follows is the little story about the crowds at the sea and then the call of the 12 disciples. So let's, let's go to the story by the sea. Verse 8, And when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him, and whoever, whenever, rather, the unclean spirit saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Now this is a recurring theme, this tell no one that is stressed throughout Mark. And in academic circles, it's called the messianic secret. And we'll look at that more in chapter 4. But for now, just... Uh, need you to know, Mark emphasizes that every time a person is healed or a demon is, recognizes Jesus for who he really is, Jesus tells them to keep quiet. The point here is that Jesus is pushing back the forces of evil and death, and the throng is pressing closer. Have a boat ready, lest the crowd become too crushing. For he healed all who came to touch him, and he drove out unclean spirits and told them to be silent. The next scene, verse 13. And he went up a mountain 
and called with him those he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. So from the wilderness of the sea, Jesus goes next to the isolation of a mountain. And in Scripture, mountains are often connected with revelation. So think of Moses and God, or think of um, Jesus and Moses and Elijah. Transfiguration. Couldn't, couldn't do it in the moment. Uh, it's also, mountains are also um, tied to redemption. So we think of Abraham and Isaac, and we think of Christ on the cross. It seems here, though, on this mountain, that Jesus finally gets the privacy and the intimacy that he desires, and he appoints certain followers from amongst the many to be his special disciples. He shares with them his authority in preaching and in casting out demons. But their big task is in verse 14, and it's to be with him. Our big task, our big task as Christians is to be with Jesus. The lesson of this is that Jesus appoints, and the word is makes or creates, 12 to be with him, 12 to follow him, 12 to do what he does. Followers of God don't exist unless God creates them. Scripture is very clear about this. Nobody will follow God or Jesus on their own. He has to create that in each of us. And further, because he calls 12, Jesus is showing a great unity between the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles of the church. This passage shows us the continuity between Israel of the past and the church of the present. I'll take a moment to explain this because there's a lot of false teaching that either says the church replaces Israel of the Old Testament or worse, that Israel will be saved in a different way from the church. And both aren't biblical. These 12 disciples are the first congregants of the present church. They are not a separate people. They are not a replacement of the old, but a renewal. There is then an unbroken consistency in God's chosen people of the past and the present because there is only one Christ. And because there is only one Savior, the fullness of the 12 tribes of Israel is continued in the fullness of the 12 apostles and therefore the church. We will fill this out more today, but for now this means that no one whom God chooses will be missed and all who God calls will be saved. It flows from God's total sovereignty about absolutely everything. Verse 16, he appointed the twelve, Simon, who he named Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boangers, that is, sons of thunder. It's a great name. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Peter tops every list of disciples in the New Testament. 
And the full list of 12 are found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John gives a partial list, and then Acts gives the whole list again, except for Judas, whom they replace by lot with Matthias. But Peter is followed by the brothers James and John, whom Mark calls sons of thunder, and then Andrew, Peter's brother. And interestingly, after Mark lists Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, Thaddeus, Simon, uh, he never mentions any of them again. Of course, Judas, the betrayer, comes up at the end of the gospel. But that's the ragtag group of disciples. Verse 20, and then he went home. Kind of anticlimactic. He gathers his followers, these special apostles, then he goes home. But the great crowd followed again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went to seize him, for they were asking, for they were saying, rather, he is out of his mind. And Mark interrupts this story about the hostility of Jesus' family with a story about the hostility of the Pharisees, and that prompts Jesus to teach what constitutes blasphemy. And then the story of his family picks up again in Mark 31 to 35. So we'll just jump right there. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And the crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? Never missing a chance to teach, right? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. Now, there's just too much here to look at the whole passage in one message. So next time, I'll go through the family Pharisee family sandwich as it relates to this whole chapter. Uh, but I, I asked Mr. Mark Crown to read through the whole thing today so that we could get to see how the crowds and the call of the apostles relates to this part, this last part of the chapter. And all this then brings us to the main question. Who are my mother and my brothers? Essentially, Jesus is asking, who are the people of God? Now, I could just jump to the answer, so I think I will. Verse 35, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. But this passage, as Mark unravels it, shows us how we get from there to here, from the Old Testament to the New, from the Old Covenant to the New. So we too ought to open it up and walk from the past to the present and uncover what Mark's original audience would have known so that what we need to know is revealed. So this will be History 101. Uh, and it's not just biblical history, it's your and my history. You need to see that these are your people. This is your story. The Bible is one single story. It's a unified story that reveals who God is. It's not meant to reveal what you're supposed to do. It is primarily who God is. The Bible is Christocentric. Every part of it points to Jesus Christ. 
And it does this through a redemptive story of God's people. The revelation of God culminates in the person and work of Jesus, but it happens through a thread of history, human history. Real life dirt and breath, love and sin, human history. The story of God's people is our story. I got to go to Israel several years ago, and it changed how I read these things. Because as a young guy, I would read lots and lots of books. Some of them were fiction, some of them were nonfiction. And it was hard, as I don't know if it is for you, it is hard to separate the stories of the Bible from other stories. But when you go there, when you stand on the Temple Mount, on the cobblestones that are, it's like a football field or two, it's huge, and you walk all the way around and there's just one little spot of actual Mount Zion. The rest is all built up. You see the uniqueness of the place. You can walk out of Jerusalem on the dusty paths and it's all down, it's down, it's downward everywhere. Um, the Sea of Galilee has a wind that blows every afternoon. Every afternoon. As the sun goes up, there's just mountains on all sides of Galilee, and it must cause the weather then to push the air down across the sea, and that's where the gales come. It's like clockwork. And the hills there are straight up, like Dr. Seuss, straight up and down. You you open the window of the hotel and there's a wall of grass that goes all the way up because that's, that's the area. If Jesus was talking to people on the hills by Galilee, they couldn't put their sandwiches down because they would roll all the way down the hill. It was, it's, that, it's that extreme. I, I say this because this is reality. All of this stuff happened in a real place to a real people. Our reading today started with a reference to the former borders of Israel, the promised land. It was the sum total of the land given to the 12 tribes of Israel. And in the Old Testament, the answer to the question, who are my mother and brothers, who is the family of God, would have been Abraham's descendants, Jacob or Israel's family. And Israel had 12 sons, so there are 12 tribes. But through sin and disobedience, God divided Israel into two parts, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. This is really well described in 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 30 to 33. Then Ahijah, who was one of God's prophets, laid hold of a new garment that was on him, his own garment, and he tore it into 12 pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, take for yourself ten pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I am about to tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon, and I will give you ten tribes. But he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David, and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city that I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel. Because I have, because rather, they have forsaken me and worshipped Astaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians. Chermosh, the god of Moab, Milcom, the god of the Ammonites, 
and they have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight and keeping my statutes and my rules as David, his father, did. So this is Bible math. This is like three in one. Ten plus one equals twelve. It happens sometimes. Ten tribes go with Jeroboam, and the number of ten represents completeness. So it's not necessarily ten. And the one tribe goes with Judah. It remains with Judah for David's sake. And it's not necessarily one tribe. It's likely Benjamin, who's always linked in, or it could be Simeon, which is inside of the borders of Judah. All that to say, it gets divided. Israel gets divided. In the centuries to follow, neither the northern kingdom nor the southern kingdom of Judah outshine each other in righteousness or obedience. The people and their kings go from being bad to being worse. And the northern kingdom falls to the Assyrians by 720 BC. That's a couple hundred years after Solomon's reign. And the people of this land are exiled, and these tribes do not return to Israel. About 150 years later, in 586 BC, the kingdom of Judah is defeated by the Babylonians. And a remnant does return after 70 years, but they return to a broken Jerusalem, a leveled temple. And even though the temple does get rebuilt, Ezekiel 10 details a vision of the glory of the Lord leaving the temple before it's destroyed. And there's never a vision or a word of his return. The Jewish people come back but they come back and practice a different religion. It's different from the one given to them by God through Moses. It's not the faith practiced by Abraham, expounded by Moses and loved by David. Jesus comments on this in John chapter 8, verse 39. They, the crowds, answered him, Our father is Abraham. And Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works of Abraham. You would do the Father's will. But the glory of God had left their presence, and so their religious practices became mere ritual and tradition and legalism. And the Holy Spirit would not return until Christ. That's where the book of Mark begins, by describing the Holy Spirit's return like a dove descending down upon Christ at his baptism. And if you'll recall from an earlier sermon, Jesus' baptism represents his coming as true Israel, the firstborn, the only Son of God. And he passes through the Jordan River, just like the Israelites did, and into the Promised Land. Jesus came to his people as the only one left, the last remnant of all the tribes of Israel the only faithful member of the family. And this is why it's so important to see Mark note the crowds coming from all the four corners of Israel at her height. Because the lands of Idumea and east of the Jordan, Tyre and Sidon, were largely Gentile. This is more than just a nod to the old borders. It's a foretaste of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God includes people from every tribe, and tongue and nation. But we add to this the call of the disciples, 
which brings a different cross-section. It brings people from every social and economic background, fishermen and brothers, men from the south, men from the north, even natural enemies like the tax collector, who would have been loyal to the government, and the zealot, who would have sought the government's overthrow. And they're all gathered into Jesus' family. In the 12 disciples then, Jesus is making it known that there is no break in the family line of the people of God. The 12 tribes are continued in the 12 apostles. And Israel, the people group, known as God's firstborn son in the Old Testament, are directly continued in the person of Jesus Christ, who is truly God's firstborn son. Jesus comes in obedience. He comes led by the Spirit. He works righteousness everywhere he goes, in the same place where all others before him worked disobedience. So, to be a member of the people of God is now a spiritual membership. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. The temple is gone, and there will not be another physical one. Instead, the new temple is not made by human hands, but it exists in the lives of those whom the Holy Spirit dwells. Also gone are the genealogies and the pedigrees of the past. In fact, when the temple was destroyed, so were all the records of the bloodlines. There are no more records of Jewish paternity, lineage and line. They're gone. So all this makes sense. When Jesus, surrounded by the dubious crowd, the Pharisees and his own blood family, says, none here are my brothers and my mother. Not one from Judah's tribe, no one from my own home. From this point on, only those who do the will of the Father will be part of my family. The fullness of Israel is from here on found in those who are baptized into me. I alone am Israel. Romans 11 says all Israel will be saved, but it goes on to explain that in Christ, Israel is both Jew and Gentile, redeemed by his blood. It is in this way that all God's people will be saved, but this is indeed the only way anyone has ever been saved. John 10, 14 to 16 says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and they know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Then, in talking about what is to come after the Holy Spirit is given to men, this vision from Ezekiel explains things even more. Ezekiel 47, verses 21 to 23. So you shall divide this land among you according to the tribes of Israel. You shall allot it as an inheritance for yourselves and for the sojourner who resides among you and have had children among you. They shall be to you as a native-born child of Israel. With you they shall be allotted an inheritance among the tribes of Israel. In whatever tribe the sojourner resides, 
There you shall assign him his inheritance, declares the Lord God. Now, this was totally impossible under the old law. No one but a Jew could own land in Israel. But in the new covenant, Jew and Gentile share in the inheritance of Jesus. If you want to see this spelled out more, just read the last half of Ephesians 2. The entry into the kingdom of God is through Jesus. Jesus is the only way into the family of God. Therefore, the passport is not racial. It's not intellectual. It's not random. It's not earned. It is only in the heeding of the call of God in your life and in depending upon Him and obeying His word and His will that we demonstrate that we are saved by the blood of Christ. It is only in depending on Him and obeying His word and His will that we demonstrate that we are saved by the blood of Christ. His death on the cross replaces our eternal death. This is the only replacement theology that there is. His resurrection guarantees our own. One theologian writes, Remember, a child in a family obeys not in order to be loved and accepted, but because he is already loved and accepted. Today, the last thing I want to do is to presume to be the Holy Spirit and tell you how to apply the truths of this passage to your lives, to the lives of this church. But I have a few places where this message from Mark meets our lives today. If God is gathering a people for himself, why would you not desire it? Do all that you can this day to say yes to God and to forsake all others and all everything else. If Rose City Church is the Christian community that God is calling you to, join in, both feet. We are to serve one another, and we are to be served by one another. It's the essence of community. There's no second option. You and I are both called to be ministers. Scripture clearly says that every believer is a minister. And you can read Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Peter 4 to see what that looks like. Now, this kind of participation has to mean more than just showing up Sundays. Around here, we talk about small groups and Bible studies and Sunday school. But all of it boils down to growing in faith and understanding and then building relationships, Christian relationships that are deep. You are to meet people at church and then build those relationships throughout the week. You are to tell me about your real struggles and I'm to tell you about mine. We pray together. We play together. We get to know each other. All so that we can be encouragers and rebukers day to day. The mature Christian gives loving correction and accepts it easily. This is how we are to behave to one another. I want you to point out my sin and then help me to overcome it. I want you to look out for my kids, get to know them, help me disciple them. It's not an option. This is not optional stuff.
We need to build the kind of Christian community that relies upon each other because we depend upon God. And that's going to be hard. It's going to be gritty. But it will also prove that we share the love of God. And they will know that we are Christians by our love. John 13, 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Who are my mother and sister and brother? Well, they're the people that are close to you in Christ. They're the church. They're the people that are committed to doing the will of God. Mark 3.35, once again. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Let's pray. Father, thank you uh, that you have not abandoned us, that you don't leave us alone, but have come near in Christ. Unite us, we pray. Father, we want to be your people. We want to be your body. We want to be that kind of community. And so, Lord, we pray that the Holy Spirit would do this work. This is not something we can muster. This is not something we do on our own. Community gets hard fast. But in Christ, community community gets good as well. Lord, I pray that you would be sanctifying us in this way, and not for our good, but for your glory and for the proclamation, the witness of who you are in this neighborhood. Oh, Lord, we praise you. Amen.